All right, let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can gather together again on your day, the Lord's day. All days are yours, but we set aside this one out of seven to worship you, to fellowship with your people, to study your word. We pray that as we look into your word today that you would open our minds and our hearts to understand it. And we pray, God, that your word would um, affect our hearts, that our thinking and our desires would be shaped more and more after what is true and right and good, and that we would love and know Jesus better. And that even as we struggle in our work and vocation and in a sinful world with sin within and us and around us, we pray that you give us hope of the day when all will be made new again. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, here's week six on our class on work and vocation. I think I got this one right, at least. Uh, November 20th, work becomes selfish and idolatrous. So we spent the first few weeks talking about God's design for work, how it has inherent dignity, how God is a worker, and how God has called us not only to honor Him in our work, but to do that by serving horizontally in the world with real people, flesh and blood, in material, physical, emotional ways. All of the world that God has made. He's called us to serve one another and actually to care for and cultivate the the earth and the world that He's made. And then last week, we started thinking about what changed in Genesis 3 and how God still has given us this same commission to care for the world, to serve one another, and to glorify Him as His image bearers. But now, everything has been corrupted in the curse. That The curse has affected all of life, and it has, both outside of us, the world, is now bearing thorns and thistles instead of good fruit. And But also inside of us, um, we have been affected as well. Um, so that was last week. We talked mainly about last week some of these things that are more out there in the sense, the, the thorns and thistles, the fruitlessness, the pointlessness, the inefficiency, the conflict, um, the ways that just, you know, we all experience that in different ways, but the thorns and thistles that, that grow up in that, where work doesn't, we don't realize what we hoped, where we have aspirations, some idea of what we're trying to achieve, um, and there might be good things, and yet we're always, in a sense, frustrated and falling short of, of what it could be. We may get glimpses of it, you may have a day where things seem to go well, and then something disrupts it, the next uh, conflict or Sometimes there's sin involved in that, and sometimes there's not. Sometimes it's just the way things work in a in a fallen world. And, but then uh, we and we touched on it last week. But this week we're going to talk more about the things that go on internally as a result of sin: shame, guilt, fear, selfishness, and idolatry, uh, and how those things not only I mean we ourselves deal with them, and then we also are working with people, others, humans that are also dealing with them as well. Maybe Christians or maybe not. You know, it, it goes both ways. Both we are selfish and other people are going to act selfishly toward us. As um, Scott Adams has for us in this Dilbert comic, number one complaint from employees is unclear objectives. My number one complaint is that it takes too much effort for me to be clear. Let's call it a tie. Why are they so selfish? You know, it goes both ways. Uh, we are act selfishly toward others. Others act selfishly toward us. Where it's easier to see others' selfishness than our own. So the main idea is is that work becomes selfish. 
You know, we saw this even last week when we looked at Genesis 3. Remember, for the first time, when Adam and Eve sinned, they, the first thing they did is actually they sewed fig leaves together and they covered themselves. Now they're, they have a self... That there's a turning in on themselves and that they're looking to preserve themselves, care for themselves, meet their own needs. And then when Adam, when God comes to Adam and asks him why he ate from the... or what happened, he, he immediately seeks to protect himself by throwing his wife under the bus. Uh, he's seeking to preserve himself, protect himself. That's a new development that's in the because of sin, and that we have a, an inherent self-orientation. So because of sin, work becomes a way to distinguish myself from my neighbor, to show the world and prove to myself that I'm special. That's what Tim Keller wrote in Every Good Endeavor. Uh, so we're going to talk about how work is selfish, and we're also going to talk about how work becomes idolatrous. And even another way to put it is that work reveals our idols, that the way that we work is actually going to be a, a lens, in a sense, to see how, what it is that we love and what we worship. Be- Tim Keller wrote, Because of sin, we turn a good thing, that is work, into an ultimate thing, which only God deserves to be. And we see that you know, in, in all of life, that the tendency, you know, the, the most... The idols that we're most susceptible to worshiping are those things that are in themselves good, that, that are God made as good, um, pleasures and family and work and things that are, that are in themselves good. But once we, they displace God as the ultimate thing in our lives, that which we live for, it becomes an idol. And ultimately nothing can sustain that level of um, uh, commitment but God himself. God is the one who can ultimately fulfill us. Anything else when it becomes ultimate will ultimately destroy us. It, it, can't, it can't be the God in our lives. It can't sustain that. So those are the big ideas that we're going to um, look at. We're going to start by looking how work becomes selfish. So we're going to look at Genesis 11. Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. We, we come across the story of the Tower of Babel. You remember we saw Genesis 1 to 3, or Genesis 1 and 2, God had put man in the world. He'd, he'd given him a, a commission to care for the earth. Genesis 4, remember we saw that man started then... You know, this idea to take dominion of the earth, to, to cultivate it, it doesn't just mean be farmers, although it includes that, but it's also broader that, you know, really the whole created world. Um, in Genesis 4, we saw that they were making music. They were fashioning instruments and making music. They were arranging sounds in a way that would create beauty. They were also making tools. So they, were, they were using... They were, there was metallurgy and technology. They were using that to, to build a city. They were organizing themselves and governing themselves in cities. And so we saw that's really, I mean, God's commission to take dominion of the earth included all of these things that we would, that are part of human society. And so in Genesis 11, uh, we see them continuing this endeavor of creating human society, but in a different way. So Genesis 11, 1 through 9 says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. So apparently, you remember back in Genesis 4, they were, said they were dwelling in tents and keeping livestock. Well, now they figured out somebody discovered that if you take mud and mix it up with something and leave it out in the sun, you can make a brick. And you can actually stack these bricks. And so, and that's not, not in itself 
sinful, but they, they're discovering new technology, new ways to build. Now let's see what they say in verse 4. It says, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So what is wrong in that verse? What, what do we see that's twisted now in Genesis eleven four? Scott? Uh, pride. Pride. Yep, there's pride. What do you what in that verse shows you their pride? Well they're gonna they're gonna see if they can reach up to God and, and they want they want the rest of the people or that aren't there to see what they've done. Look at what we've made. Yep. Yeah, there's a a a selfish orientation here. Anything else? What did God say to disperse? Right. Yeah, God told them to fill the earth, to multiply and fill the earth, and now they're almost they're intentionally not filling the earth. They're they're be, in a sense becoming just like Adam and Eve did, a god to, to themselves, and and organizing according to what they think is best, so that we're not dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Anything else? Us, ourselves, ourselves again. Mm-hmm. So it is very self-focused. Right. And trying to make a name, like I said, make a name for themselves. Yeah, what do you think that means, to make a name for yourself? I mean, we... I don't know if it's just to be remembered as a, you know, advanced people or what their desire was other than just to try and do it on their own works. Right. Yeah, you think about that, you know, we don't usually make names for ourselves, right? I mean, you didn't name yourself. Your, your parents named you. You know, you get a pet. Your pet doesn't name itself. You name your pet. You know, it's, it come, names come, in a sense, from with outside of us. But here, it's like they've, they've divorced themselves from God, from a greater reality that's outside them that would give them purpose and meaning. And they're seeking to create that for themselves, to make a name, to make a reputation for themselves, really to come up with their own identity, their own purpose in life. Which, you know, actually, ironically, it almost it suggests that they don't yet have a name. That they're actually looking to this endeavor to build a city to create for themselves a name, a purpose, a significance in the world. Have any of you read, um, how many of you read Wing Feather Saga? I, I think I can do this without any spoilers, but the very... <laughs> okay, well... Um, <laughs> um, so maybe some of you got the irony then. When you, if you read the beginning of it, they introduced this evil villain, right? Um, there was this something like I'm, I'm doing this somewhat from memory. I forgot to look it up before I came, but you know there was this evil creature Nag. He was a, a, a nameless evil. He had no name. His name was Nag the Nameless. Something to that effect. Uh, this evil villain has no name, yet he does have a name. In a sense, I think what the irony there, and I, I'm not sure if this is intent. I'm sure, I, I imagine Andrew Peterson did that intentionally. But this nameless evil, it's like he he sets himself up to be. God, um, and he sets himself up to create his own identity. But we can't escape the fact that we have to have meaning our, ourselves. We have to have identity. In other words, if God doesn't, if we're not living in a world where we get our identity and our meaning, our purpose from God, then we have to seek to create it for ourselves. 
And that's what they're doing in, in Babel. If they're, they're, they're trying to reach up to the heavens. They're trying to get up to God. And in a sense, they're, they're creating for themselves their own identity. Well, and you can see the rest of the story. The Lord comes down. He judges them. They are one people. They all have one language. This is only the beginning of what they'll do. Nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. So let us go down now, confuse their language, so they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord then dispersed them, exactly what they didn't want to do. The Lord does, in judgment, He disperses them from over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So, one of the things that we see here is, even in this self-orientation, it comes right at the heart of what God actually made for them to do. Their commission was to fill the earth. And in a sense, building a city was not in itself sinful, but now it's corrupted. Instead of becoming a means to fill the earth with God's glory, it's a means to gather together and make a name for themselves. For Christians, though, and this is where we can, I'm jumping ahead to the New Testament, but just as a contrast to see that we don't have to get our identity from what we do. In Genesis 11, they were seeking to get their identity from what they could accomplish. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. We can have, this is, we're going to get into this more later in the class, but just to contrast, what the difference for us is that we're not seeking to make ourselves a name. We're not seeking to find our identity through self-expression, through achievement, that we have been called children of God. We have an identity that's grounded outside of us. If you remember that, I mean, the picture that I've been drawing crudely every week is that you have God, and then you have, you know, you, and then the people in the world who you're called to serve, the world itself. You know, when you take God out of the picture, now you're on the top of the throne, and you have to define yourself, you have to make a name for yourself. But when we receive that identity from God... It changes everything. It changes how we view our work. If you no longer, if you no longer have that grounding in a sense, that identity in God, what are the implications for you in how you how you're going to view your work? Think not necessarily building a city to make a name for yourself, but just in the profession that you find yourself in, or your your vocation, whether in the home or the workplace. What are the implications for your work if you no longer have to make a name for yourself in your work? Work as unto the Lord. Yeah, you can work as unto the Lord. Sometimes questions, I, I don't know if you guys understand, but they, sometimes they make more sense in my mind. But I, I want you to see that, you know, that what they saw in Genesis 11, they, they had, in a sense, to look to their work to find their identity, their purpose, their meaning. If you already have that, then you don't need to go create that. You don't need to go find that because you've already been given that. Your identity has already been defined for you, from outside of you, from God himself. I was looking for a little image to go with this, and then I found this article that talked about you know, the, the rat race. In a sense, the rat race is the, you know, the, the uh, endeavor to find your identity through your work, whether getting to the next level, getting the next promotion, moving up the ladder, making more money. You know, the race of treadmill, it really doesn't lead lead anywhere. This cartoon symbolizes that. You've got this idea of, I'm going to go achieve greatness, and reality is going to come crashing in on you. But I I found, ironically, in this article, I think it was from the Washington Post, um, 
maybe maybe not, but it was a, a, a woman who was just talking about how to get out of the rat race, how to find an identity for yourself that's not based on your achievement in the workplace. And she's not a believer. So she recognized, though, that if you're trying to find your identity in your work, if you're, you are going to throw yourself into it in, this, in, in ways that are unhealthy. That if you're trying to always one-up someone and achieve a certain level of performance, that it can be tiring. It can be draining. You're never quite there. There's always something out there in front of you. So she identified a couple different alternatives. One, one was the overwork of throwing yourself into your work, which she said, we don't want to do that. Um, the other option was to retire from your work completely, but then you have no place in society. You have no meaning. You have no identity because now you don't, you don't fit anywhere. So she actually advocated, and this was in all seriousness, retiring from your work, but then creating a fictional professional identity so that you could maintain a sense of identity, but yet also have a sense of sanity, that you don't have to overwork, but you don't actually lose your identity. I found that just ironic, and that she's, she, she's trying to create an identity without God. And she realized, she realized the inherent challenge of that, and that it, you're never, you never arrive. But really what she left, she's left with is just, you make it up yourself. Which, you can see the, the dead-end road. If you don't have an identity from outside yourself, really for the work itself becomes... It becomes, in a sense, pointless. That you either work yourself to death to achieve something, which is really, as we saw last week, fruitless and pointless. The alternative is, though, a dead end. But if you have an identity outside of, from outside of yourself, it really can free you from that. You no longer have to prove yourself. You no longer have to make a name for yourself. You no longer have to advance yourself at the expense of others. So how many of us have that opportunity you know, you if you're if you're selfish and you're running across selfish people in your work or in your home, there's going to be sin involved, and you're going to have to forgive wrongs, or you're going to have to extract your pound of flesh from the other guy to make them pay. Um, but if you no longer have to advance yourself, if you're no longer seeking to discover yourself and it, through your work, then you can forgive others and you can acknowledge your own mistakes, even at cost to yourself which I know can be challenging. I've, I had to do that a, f- a little while ago. We had d- designed a project. We made a mistake. Uh, it was going to cost the owner $100,000 f- to fix that. And I was really, and if, I was afraid what was going to happen, if they were going to ask us to pay for that, if they were going to be willing to pay for that some themselves. Or I, I didn't know how it was going to turn out. But and in the midst of that, there's a, ten- there's a temptation to fear and think, you know, maybe I can craft a narrative so that it wasn't really my fault. It was someone else's fault. I'll put the blame on the contractor or someone else. But in those moments, you know, where the rubber meets the road, if we can find our identity outside of ourselves and who we are in God, then we can. We really are forced to trust Him that He will be with us. In that case, I think there was actually a resolution that worked out without us having to foot the bill. But there was moments of uncertainty where I really had to uh, rest in in my identity outside of myself and my own my work and my success. I'd like to look at the story of Esther briefly just to see how this played out in her, in her life. You could turn there if you want, Esther chapter 4. I'll give you the brief rundown. Esther, you know, you remember, probably remember the story. Uh, the king gets mad with his wife. He sends her away and then he starts this search for a new queen through, you know, 
coincidence, as it were, if we can call it that. Um, Esther finds herself pleasing the king and in a position where she is invited in to be the next queen. Um, but she does so by hiding her identity as a Jew. So all along she's, she's climbed the ladder, as it were, to where she's in the palace now. She's the queen of the land. But she's done that without having to um, expose her identity, so the king doesn't even know that she's a Jew. And meanwhile, Haman plots to destroy the Jews because they don't follow the laws of the land, and specifically Mordecai, who was Esther's uncle, I think, did not bow down to him. So he seeks to destroy the Jews. So then we come across this this conflict that happens in Esther chapter 4. Someone just want to read Esther 4, starting in, I think, verse 12, 12 or 13. I'm about 12. So I want to read 12 through um, 16 for us. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said, and Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time. And Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold it fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my, and my young women will also fast, as you do. And I will go to the king, and though it is against the law, if I perish, I perish. Yeah, that's good. So, Esther's in this moment of crisis now. Is she going to use... She's in a position of power. She's in the palace, and yet her people are in danger of, of dying, danger of being, being wiped out. And Mordecai writes to her, you know, he tells her in verse 14, if you keep silence, relief will arise from the Jews, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So she is faced with this question. She has a position of power, prominence. Is she going to seek to preserve that, to protect herself, and just conceal who she is, and just let things play out as they will? Or will she use her position to save her people, even at great cost to herself? In verse 16, you see her response, pretty well-known or famous response, where she, she calls for a fast, and then she says, I will go to the king, though it is against the law. Remember, if she goes to the king unbidden, and he, and he does not grant her his scepter, she would be killed. So she says, if I perish, I perish. Now, none of us are in exactly this circumstance, in the sense of being in, in a royal palace in the land of Persia. But you notice... Um, you know, we saw through the circumstances in Esther that God providentially arranged things. You know, the name of God actually isn't used in the whole book of Esther, which some people, I think, said it shouldn't be in the Bible because of that. But if you read through the narrative, you see clearly God is providentially arranging things to put Esther in this place at this time to protect his people. So even though God's not mentioned, God was ordaining her to be in this place at this time. And that's true we, for all of us. You know, we saw this in 1 Corinthians 7 that God calls us and assigns us through our life circumstances to be where we are at a given time. You know, we're not queens of Persia, but we all have different roles, responsibilities, influence, power, in a sense, over those around us. Whether you're in a position of authority or not, you have influence in those around you. So the same question that Esther had to deal with here is, in a sense, a question that we all have to face in our vocation. Will we use... Uh, will we seek to preserve ourselves 
and build up for ourselves, keep ourselves safe, protect ourselves, or can we, if we, can we free ourselves from that and actually take risks for others, even at great cost to ourselves? You know, remember what Jesus said in Matthew 16, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You to think about that in your vocation, that God has, in a sense, placed each one of us in the palace, in that um, you have access to people and circumstances um, that are unique to you, that God's put you there, in a sense, to to serve Him, to serve His purposes. And we, there may, this may not be something that happens every day, but there will be moments where you have to make this choice. Am I going to use my influence and my, my, this, this opportunity to serve myself, to keep the, to keep the status quo as it is, to protect my reputation and even advance myself? Or am I willing to risk that um, to serve God and His purposes? The tendency we are going to have as work, as work has become selfish and self-oriented is to just look out for our own interests. But God calls us to, to serve His purposes. And when, when we have that identity that's outside of us, we can be free. That we don't have to, if we're not looking to work to define us, to become a name for us, then in a sense we can let it go. We can hold it with an open hand. If I risk something for God here, if I... Um, make a choice that doesn't seem like it's going to work out for my best in my best interest. It's okay. It's in God's hands. My 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 meaning, my purpose comes from outside of myself. Any questions there on how work becomes selfish? And I'm going to go on now to talk about how work becomes idolatrous. But any questions or comments on any of that? Yeah. You're like um, we're talking about the like the the pride of it. Like I'm going to throw myself into my work. I'm going to I mean, I've worked jobs where I thought, especially before I was a believer, and it was a feeling of, like, like humiliating. Like, why am I in this job? Like, I'm better than this job. Mm-hmm. Like, I should just quit. Um, and I think that if, if I trusted in the Lord, then I'd say, you know, I'm just doing what I need to do at this time. This isn't, you know, this, this doesn't define me. You know, this, what, I, right. what I feel is a low position doesn't mean that I'm in a low position. Right. Yeah, it kind of works both ways, doesn't it? If you're looking to your work to define you, either you're going to work very hard and feel like, and if you're, you're reaching for that, you're going to feel pride in that. Or if it's below you and you're looking to it to define you, then you're going to feel that, that pride that says, I can't do this because it's, it's below me. I have a, I'm looking for something greater. Yeah, I think you're right. It goes both ways. When we look at how work becomes idolatrous, it's really a question of worship. What is it that you're going to worship? Remember God, the first commandment. God spoke all these words, Exodus 20, verse 1, 1 through 3. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, you notice his prohibition of idolatry, verse 3, is really what we call the first commandment of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. But you have to notice it doesn't just come in a vacuum. It comes in a, in a context where God is reminding them of his, first of all, his identity, who he is. I am the Lord, your God. I am Yahweh, your God. Not not only his identity, but then also what he's done. He brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And that's really the context for this command, not to have any other gods before him. Let me ask you to think back. um, When was the first time that we read of idolatry in the Bible? Steve, you want to? Um, it's in Genesis, and it's 
you, you when um, Eve is convinced, she can be like God. Yeah. Yep. You guys all hear that? Steve said it's in Genesis. Um, when Satan tells Eve in Genesis 3, 5, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. In a sense, that's taking this, you know, the way that God made the world with Him in control, us as His um, image-bearing creatures to reflect His image and saying, we can actually be up there with Him. You can be like God. You don't have to submit to Him. You can be like Him. In that sense, idolatry is really the sin that's underneath all of the other sins. It's where we're taking the authority to live life as we see fit without reference to God. And it's interesting to note, actually, you know, in this specific area, I mean, the sin underneath the sin was becoming like God, that, that pride that's saying, I can become like God. But remember, God had given them this commission to care for the garden, to care for, to work and serve in the garden. And the way that the outward expression of their idolatry was an abuse of that calling. God had called them to care for the garden, and now they're actually in the area of that vocation. They're living as they see fit. They're taking the tree that they were told not to, and they're eating it making their own rules, living for themselves in the area of their vocation. And I think we're going to see, we're going to see that continues still today, that the area, idolatry and work are interwoven. So because, because work is so much of what God called us to do, to work to be creative producers in the world, uh, whatever that looks like in the, the different vocations, idol- that's, that's integral to our identity as, being, as image-bearing creatures of God. So idolatry sneaks in there and subverts that so that instead of working in the world for God's glory, we're now making the rules ourselves and working with, for ourself, with ourself on the throne. You want to answer that, Raymond? The other thing it's super important not to overlook the way God grounds everything in himself. When he's, especially when he's given the commandments, he's, I am, and this is what I have done, therefore you shall. You shall, because of who I am, and because of what I have done. This is, this is all the stuff that, this is the basis of existence. Right. It, it, and, and the foundation of it all. And, you know, you, we live out of harmony with that at our own, at our own expense, to our own detriment. You know? Right. Yeah, it's really once you take God off the throne, life we have to create meaning for ourselves and it doesn't life doesn't work the way it was supposed to. You know, Steve nailed that one on the head about this being the first instance of idolatry. I know there's a temptation at times to think that idolatry in the Old Testament was just like bowing down to golden images, which it was at times, but I think even in the Old Testament we see that it was always more than that. That was the outward expression, but really what was that was a matter issue was a heart matter. Martin Luther quote, commented on the first commandment. I don't know if you guys can all read that. But he says, The first commandment commands, Thou shalt have no other gods, which means, Since I alone am God, thou shalt place all thy confidence, trust, and faith on me alone and no one else. All those who do not at all times trust God and, and His favor, grace, and goodwill, but seek His favor in other things or in themselves, do not keep this commandment and practice real idolatry. So he's there saying that it's, idolatry is not just creating an image and bowing down to it. It's actually when you're living your life, not trusting God, but instead living it for, in, for other things or for yourself, then you are not keeping that commandment and you're practicing real idolatry. 
is if we do not believe that God is gracious to us and is pleased with us, or if we presumptuously expect to please Him only through and after our works, then it is all pure deception, outwardly honoring God, but inwardly setting up self as a false god. And what he says here is actually, uh, you see that even in other places, even in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel 14, we see that um, God condemns the rulers of Israel. And he tells them specifically, in verse 2, it says, The word of the Lord came to me. This is Ezekiel speaking to the elders of Israel. And he says, Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts. He's talking about the leaders of Israel. And they're not necessarily being condemned here because they're bowing down to graven images, but because they have set up in their hearts idols for themselves to worship. He speaks to them in judgment, and he says in verse 5, the goal of that, he says, well, in verse 4, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols, that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel, who are, who are all estranged from me through their idols. So we see, I mean, this is woven through the whole Old Testament. We see that idolatry is really a heart issue. Who's going to be God? Who is going to, in a sense, lay hold of the heart, of your heart? What is it going to be? What are you going to live for? And if it's something other than God, then we will, like Israel at the time, we will be estranged from God through their idols. God does not uh, allow anyone else to be on the throne. There is no one else who can be on the throne. You remember the story of the rich young ruler. Remember he came to Jesus and said, what, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, believe in the Lord and you'll be saved. No, he doesn't say that. That's what we think he should have said. <laughs> but he he's not a tame lion. He doesn't just do things the way we think he should. You know, after he said he kept all the commandments, Jesus said, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Which is... A little bit jarring to us who want to say, you know, you're saved by faith alone. Just believe, pray this prayer, and you're saved. That's what what we've grown up hearing. And Jesus doesn't say that. He says, he tells him to sell his possessions because he knows that this man has an idol in his heart. That though he's outwardly religious, his wealth, his position that he gained from his wealth was an idol in his heart. And so Jesus exposes that. And it says the man went away very sad because he was extremely rich. So idolatry estranges us from God and it and it really reveals what our heart's affections are. And I want to make the case now from Genesis well, Romans one, that this is a matter that really is at the heart of our vocations, our, our work that we're God has called us to do. Romans one, eighteen through twenty five. I want as we read through this, I want you to just notice how much creation language you hear in these verses. Does someone want to read this for me? Romans 1, 18 through 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. But what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they came, became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, 
and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Amen. All right, so we start off, Paul is talking about the wrath of God being revealed against the unrighteousness of man. And then he says, and he starts to explain that. And he says in, 19, in verse 19 that what can be known about God is plain to man because God has shown it to them. So what does he mean by that? What is it that God has made known or shown to man? Himself? Yep. His invisible attributes, right? Verse 20. Then explains the answer to that. Uh, what... He has made plain his invisible attributes. Those things, they're invisible. You can't see them. But he's made them seen. He's made them visible in the creation. Uh, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, so that they are without excuse. And yet man, it says, they, although they knew God, so everyone in a sense knows, everyone perceives this. God's power is nature. They perceive it in the world. And yet instead of recognizing, instead of honoring him as God or giving thanks to him, they become futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. The futile actually is the same idea of what we saw last week, how work is, life is meaningless. That's really what their thinking becomes futile, becomes meaningless, it becomes vain, because they're trying to conceive of a world where God isn't there. They're ignoring Him, they have just themselves trying to understand the world, and there's no, no greater reality outside of them. Now look over here on the right side, we, talk, we see two things, oh, we see two places where God... Paul talks about them exchanging things. I want you to, what, what do we see them exchanging? They give, they exchange something for something twice. Just shout it out. Alright, they exchange glory. For what? Images. It, images. What else? Truth for a lie. Now, what does this mean? Look at that verse carefully. Romans 1, 20, the verse 23. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, he's just talked about how men are without excuse. They knew God. They didn't honor Him as God. Why do you think... What, is he, what does he mean here? They exchanged the glory of God for images resembling mortal man and birds and creeping things. Isn't that... I mean, does, do you think he has in mind here people that are, instead of worshiping God, they're bowing down to images of snakes and humans and birds and animals? He might be making like a, a philosophical point. You know, like the immortal is above the mortal. So you have an immortal God and his glory. And it would be one thing if you had an image of him. <clears throat> an image of that would be less than the real thing. But then... You don't even have an image of that. You have an image of mortal stuff, stuff that just fades away. That's like it's as low as the creeping thing. So like bugs, right? Yeah. He's kind of he's 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 there's like a a comparison between like the very highest thing you can imagine and the very lowest. Yeah, I think that's probably part of it. Think Genesis one. What do you think is what else could be going on here? Any any takers? Remember, God put a man in the garden. He made him in his image. And what was he commissioned to do? Genesis 1, 26, 28, I think it is, 26. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God... He created us to take dominion 
over the earth, which we saw, remember, when we saw that in um, Genesis 1, that wasn't just taking care of the animals, although it included that, but it really was meant to be, it grounds all of our work in caring for the world, in all of our different vocations. So I think here Paul is actually, I think his, you know, notice the amount of creation language. He's talking about ever since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes have been made. Here he says they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Paul's thinking back to creation. And if you look back at that at Genesis 1 and you compare these two texts, you see some surprising connections, I think, that Paul is making. Genesis 1, he says, the man is made in the image and likeness of God. That's, these, are, these are the Greek words, ekonos and homoiomati, the image and likeness of God. In Romans 1.23, Paul says that they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, ekonos, same word, resembling homoiomati. That's like images and the likeness of is basically what is just translated a little differently. Uh, so they exchanged the glory of God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now the correspondence here isn't exact, but it's still, I think, pretty, stri- pretty surprising. that he's, We were to have dominion over the fish, the birds, the livestock, and the creeping things. And now man is making images, or he's, he's exchanging the glory of God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Remember what Paul says in Romans 3? He says, we all have sinned and broken God's law. No. What does he say? Romans 3.23, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know, we think of sin as missing the mark, which is true. There's an aspect of that's true, like you're shooting a, you know, an arrow and you miss the target. But it's more than that. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We didn't just fall short of God's standards. God actually, why would he say that, God, that we fell short of the glory of God? And why would he say here that we exchanged the glory of God? I think what he's saying is that God made us as his image bearers to reflect his glory, to be like him in a sense, not like him to compete with him like Genesis 3.5, but like him in that we would reflect his glory. That's what we fell short of when, we, when, when Adam and Eve sinned, all of us together with them fell short of that glory. We, we no longer live up to that glorious calling to be image bearers of God that reflect his glory and and fill the earth with that glory through our work in the world. We fell short of that. Someday we'll get we'll get that back. That's why Romans 8:21 says that creation will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The redeemed are going to be restored to that status of reflecting the glory of God. But now in the here and now We've exchanged that. We no longer live up to that calling to, to glorify God by reflecting His image in the world. And instead, you know, he says, remember what he says in Psalm 8, that we were crowned with glory and honor. And he specifically says that we're crowned with glory and honor because God had subjected the world to us, that we would govern the world. That was part of our inherent design for us to reflect His glory in, in governing the world. But since we've fallen short of that, Um, Now we're exchanging that glory. And he says, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, this is a little bit... I I think it would include idolatry of worshiping things. But I think he's also making the point that as we continue our work of governing the earth, to subdue it, to to take dominion of the earth, if we do that without reference to God, if we do that without God in the picture... 
Then, as he's just said a few verses before, remember, he said, they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. When we do the work that God has given us to do, but without honoring Him as God or giving thanks to Him, it becomes idolatry. The work itself becomes idolatrous. We are exchanging the truth about God for a lie. And that's actually why he says here, well, so we were designed to worship and serve the Creator. That's what... And I think he's thinking in Genesis 1. And that's what we were made to do. To image God, to worship and serve Him through, not just through an unending church service, although there will definitely be worship. I mean, worship is not just going to church. It's how we live our lives and serve God in the world that He made. So we were created to worship and serve the Creator. But now we've exchanged the truth about God and we worship and serve the creature. That word for creature could actually also be be translated creation. It's the same, same word in Greek. So instead of using our vocation, our work to to worship and serve God, we're now using that to worship and serve created things, whether that's ourselves or whether that's other gifts that God has given us. Any questions on that? Kevin? Not a question, but this um, reminds me of Keller's Keller wrote a book on idolatry, uh-huh. like counterfeit gods or something yeah. like that. And in there was a quote that said, um, I think it's maybe he's quoting Calvin or someone, and he says the human heart is an idol factory. Right. And just like we will worship something. Right. Like it's not like a it doesn't have to be like a life, you know, we think like maybe a lifetime of worship, but it yeah. happens when we leave church, right? Like we're feeling good, we just worship God, and like immediately the world pulls for that right. worship somehow. Yeah, if you remember at the beginning of the, if you're here in our introduction, we talked about all of the different ways that work can actually be a good thing. Different things that there's not just one, but we can, you know, ways that we can honor God in our work. Um, by doing our work well, doing our work to the glory of God, by serving others, by making money and then using that money generously to give to others. There was a lot. We listed off a, a variety of them. But I would suggest that, I mean, what Kevin is saying is exactly right, that any one of those good things, those good purposes for work that we can, in a sense, realize in part, can also become idolatrous. That we can, because of our idol-making hearts, idol factories of hearts, those good purposes for work can be, and often are, turned towards idolatrous purposes. So, can you guys think, I mean, I don't know, have you, how do you see that played out? How can work be idolatrous? There's some that are more obvious in some professions. I mean, you know, it's maybe you can think of like, you know, those who are climbing the corporate ladder so they can have a certain status in society, have, buy that house, buy that boat, buy that car. You know, that's Maybe more obvious to us, you know, if, you, if you're working so that you can gain prestige in society or money so that you can have a certain lifestyle. But what are, what are some other ways? And just remember, idolatry is subtle. Our hearts are deceitful. How else can work be idolatrous? Well, it's pretty simplistic, but you can just the work itself. Like how often your boss wants to talk to you is there fear involved, right? Uh, your fear of losing the work mm-hmm. uh, to do whatever else. So, I mean, the sense of security mm-hmm. in what you're doing right. versus you'll be taken care of right. regardless. Yeah, no, it's looking to your job as a means of security, stability, 
and idolizing those things and the, what the job really represents in that regard. Like the parable of the farmer who like built a barn and said, "Oh, I, I filled up this whole new right. Farm. I'm set. I can I can kick up my feet now. Right. I'm secure now." <laughs> yeah. How about just doing? Um, I know sometimes there's work. There's a different kind of prestige that comes, maybe not making a lot of money, but doing like really significant work, doing really meaningful work. Like, I'm going to go volunteer for a nonprofit, or I'm going to go into ministry, or I'm going to do something that's really significant. I think that is, in a sense, is another version of that same idolatry that says, I'm going to find my ultimate meaning and purpose through throwing myself into this work. I'm not going to, and even almost you flip that pride on its head and say, well, I'm not going to do it for the money. You know, I'm clearly not proud in that sense, but I'm going to do it for the accolades of people who see me as really sacrificing for others. You know, I'm really doing something important. Yeah, right? There's actually a whole industry set up um, around catching people from wayward lifestyles into a pseudo-Christianity and then puffing them up with this idea that they should, oh, go right out and be spirit-filled ministers and stuff, you know, and and, the, and it's like, it's a, it's just a shift from one form of idolatry to another. Yeah. You know, and um, it's real easy, it's scary to get caught in that and be thinking that you're doing the Lord's work. Right. I mean, you're really just worshiping yourself some more. Right. Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Cheryl. Anything that God gives us that we don't recognize and give thanks to him right. recognize that it was him who even gave us the ability or the opportunity I mean we see that how he warns them be careful when you get to the promised land and you start right. enjoying the good things that you say in your heart You know, look what we did and that's, I think that's really yeah yeah there's the list could go on but you know you can I think we all just I mean knowing that our hearts as Calvin said our hearts are idle factories any of the good things that you could do in your work, if it's if you take God out of the picture, if He's not on the throne, it's gonna something's gonna get there. Something's gonna be on the throne. You're gonna it may even be a good sounding thing. I'm gonna I'm just trying to provide for my family. I'm just trying to serve my clients. But really, you're, you know, you're serving your clients so that you can be their go to whatever. So that you can be, you can make a name for yourself. We're going to make a difference in the world. There's a lot of ways, I mean, these things aren't all necessarily bad. I mean, the sense we need to provide for our families, we need to serve people, it's good, it's fine, it's good to make a difference in the world, but when we take those things and make them ultimate things, they can easily, I mean, they, at that point, they become idolatrous. So, I think the list goes on. There's, and all of us, I think I would just encourage you to, I mean, as Christians, we just need to be aware of that tendency in our own hearts. There is hope for us, though. You know, I see it in my work. You know, in every vocation you'll see it a little differently, but I, I sometimes, you know, in the design profession, well, on the one hand, I see those who really just, like, especially in construction, where they're just really working for the weekend. Like, they're getting, they're making good money, and they're just getting, using the money to party on the weekend. And that sends, like, pleasure and immediate gratification is their is their idol. But I also see people, and I work with architects sometimes, who like at the start of a project, it's like, we're going to really make a place that's going to define this city, and we're going to leave our imprint on this, you know, this society. Like, they ha- they're wanting to see, make a name for themselves in their work. And you can see it in, you know, every aspect of our work. There's a tendency to, 
idolize, to place ourselves on the throne. But there is hope for us. Uh, we can't finish, I think, without at least recognizing that you know, God entered into the world to rescue us from our selfishness, from our idolatry. 2 Corinthians five fourteen through 17 Paul says, The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. That is, Jesus has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And I think he has in mind here, though all those who are in Christ have, in a sense, that old man that is corrupt because of sin, as Paul said in Romans 6, that that man has been crucified with Christ. We have all died with Christ in that sense. And he didn't just die for all to put to death our sin, but verse 15 says, He died for all so that purpose of it was all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves. That's Genesis 11. Um, living for themselves, making a name for yourself, living to build yourself up. And he said, we're no longer to live for ourselves, but for him, that is for Christ, who for their sake died and was raised. Um, you know, this is just what we said in 1 John 3, but now when, when we live for, for Jesus, you know, now we have an identity a purpose that comes from outside of us. It's no longer something that we have to make for ourselves. And we're no longer on the throne. He is the one who's on the throne, who for our sake died and was raised. And that resurrection, I think, is key. You know, Jesus was raised, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And then he says, in, going on, he says in 16, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So if you are in Christ, then that resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us to make us a new creature, a new creation. Uh, We have a new identity in Christ. We're freed from having to build that for ourselves or find that through our work in some capacity. Yeah, right. Therefore, let the thief steal no more. So let him work hard with his hands, and he may have something to give to those in need. It's like yeah. shifting perspective from who I was. Right. Man, we were all thieves. All yeah. That's one of us, you know. And shifting perspective to who we are to be, you know, no longer for ourselves, but for him who died. Right. For our sake, he was raised. Yeah, the old man has passed away, the new has come. And the old, like you're saying, the old might be the thief on the streets, or it might be the professional who's trying to discover himself through achievement. I mean, there's, a, there's the old, the sin nature, the idolatrous, sinful self, selfishness, it takes on different garbs in all of us. But Christ has put all of that to death and offered us new life. So, just in closing, a few points of application. We think about how this applies So when we understand that our identity is not grounded in our work, we can be free to act selflessly in love for others. I mean, if you think about that in your workplace, I mean, I'm sure you'll find opportunities to live that out, that thinking about, am I going to live for myself, for my own reputation, for my own advancement, or can I selflessly love others? Uh, We can also be free to forgive others who act selfishly toward, uh, toward us, we can also be free to acknowledge our own mistakes and accept the consequences. We don't have to hold on to our reputation, our work, as our ultimate ends. And when we recognize our tendency to to idolatry in our vocation, it's going to be wrapped up in the work that God's called us to do. We're going to have a tendency to place something else on the throne besides God. Like we do with any sin, we repent, 
and we refocus our hearts upon God, who, who is the one who gives us the work. We recognize that we have a tendency to put good things that He gave us. Whether I mean, in the home, it's going to be raising children. But, you know, in the workplace, there's good things that God gives us to do, and we're going to have a tendency to take Him off the throne and elevate those things. But as we see that in our hearts, we repent and ask Him for for strength to rightly worship Him. Let me close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, God, our hearts are so prone to idolatry. We we love and worship ourselves and and other good things that you've given us. God, we ask that you would forgive us of our sin and and help us, God. Help us to recognize it. Uh, sometimes it's deceitful and crafty, and we don't even realize that in the name of some good um, purpose we have actually been living for ourselves and our own our own desires and we pray that you'd forgive us of that and that you'd give us wisdom and strength to to live selflessly and to live faithfully and to really seek to do our work as unto you for your glory we pray this all in Jesus name amen